If you've been visiting the last few weeks, I promise we're not going to stay in Acts 2, 42 through 47 forever. In fact, this is our last, this is our last week in it. Uh, but we have more to glean and dig out. Let me pray for us as we dig into God's word. God, as we come now to your holy, authoritative, inerrant word, we pray that you would give us ears to hear what you have to say to us. Humble us, God, underneath this word. Help us to posture ourselves in a position of surrender to receive. And God, may we not be those who hear the word only, but may we be doers of your word. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. In 1956, a man by the name of of Jim Elliott was killed as he attempted to bring the gospel to the Huarani tribe in Ecuador. At the time of his death, his death as a martyr, Most people viewed him sympathetically. Even those who were not Christians tended to look upon Eliot's tragic life sympathetically. But 62 years later, in 2018, a 26-year-old man by the name of John Allen Chaw experienced the same fate as he sought to bring the good news of Jesus to the Sentinelese people in North Sentinel Island. Chaw's death, however, was was not received the same way as Eliot's. It sparked all kinds of debate. As as Brett McCracken explains, while some sympathetic Christians saw Chaw's life as an inspiring tale of martyrdom, secular skeptics found more fodder for their perceptions of evangelical stupidity. In, in, In an article, McCracken unpacks how Chaw's death serves as an example of how even many Christians today have come to view evangelism and world missions. He writes this. He says, The mixed response to the Chaw story shows how the narrative around foreign missions has shifted and is increasingly associated with a variety of toxic isms. Colonialism. Imperialism. Patriarchalism. Parochialism pragmatism, and so on. The the changing perception, particularly in the post-Christian West, is that whatever good might come with the Christianizing of a pagan culture is largely outweighed by the bad. It's been my own observation in recent years that there is a growing aversion, especially among younger believers, to evangelism and missions. Now, undoubtedly, there have been negative effects to foreign missions. We need to be honest about this. Going all the way back to Constantine and the adoption of Christianity as the religion of the empire, the advancement of the kingdom of Christ has been convoluted. The Crusades are, in large part, an ugly mark on the history of the church. Forced conversion is not real gospel advancement. As Dr. Russell Moore explains a government that has the power to enforce religion does not turn people into Christians. It turns them into pretend Christians. The isms that McCracken mentions in his article are real dangers. Often there has been a lack of thoughtfulness and nuance in our efforts to spread the gospel. There's, there's been a muddling oftentimes 
of Christianity with Western and American ideals. When it comes to short-term mission trips, they're, they're, they can sometimes be more about Instagram posts than actual ministry to, to other peoples. Helping is often more hurtful than genuinely beneficial. And so let me get the caveats out of the way. Clearly, our methods and our motives matter immensely when it comes to sharing our faith. But I think it's also true that we now find ourselves living in an age where evangelism not only bears a stigma, but is viewed as being completely out of touch with reality. There there was a time when you could knock on someone's door and ask them, if you died tonight, would you know for certain that you would spend eternity in heaven? And that question made perfect sense to everyone. Even people who weren't Christians tended to believe that there was some version of God and that there was some place that people went to after they died. But those same assumptions can no longer be made. We now live in a secular age where God and the afterlife are viewed as make-believe. And in such a world, missions not only doesn't make sense, it's, it's viewed as offensive. In a world where God is absent, so is truth. And so beliefs are fine as long as they're kept personal. But try and say something is true, as in true for all people and all places, and that is quickly cast down. That's offensive. That's oppressive. We find ourselves living in a time when it is acceptable for you to be a Christian so long as you don't push that on other people. But faith belongs in private. Maybe you felt the tension. I'm looking at college students and young adults. I I would assume that many of you have felt that tension, especially on the campus. Maybe you felt intimidated to, to share your faith. Maybe you've even wondered if it's wrong to do so, much less to travel and go do it. How can we, in a culture telling us not to, what what does faithful witness look like in our world today? That's the question I want to try to tackle in these next few minutes. I think think we find some answers as we come back to Acts chapter 2 one more time. And as we look at these same verses, I I want us to draw out three realities related to this question of, of, of gospel witness. I want us to notice a reality, a message, And then an exhibition. And so first, a gospel reality. As as I was studying the text this week, I was gripped by a single word. It's a word that we've read every week for the past five weeks. In fact, it's a word that many of us, if we've we've grown up in the church at all, or if we've spent any amount of time reading our Bibles, it's, it's a familiar word. It's that last word in verse 47. Every day, the Lord added to their number... Those who were being saved. I wonder when the last time it was that you hovered your mouse over that word for any period of time. I think it's one of those words that we've become so familiar with in the church that we sort of breeze right on past it, never stopping to ask what it actually implies. Saved from what? This week, as I was meditating on this text, the Holy Spirit sort of ripped the calluses off of this word for me and exposed fresh skin to the air of my heart, and it stung. 
This word in the original language is, is sozo. And it has the basic meaning of rescuing from peril. Now, sometimes in the Bible, this word is used to refer to, to physical deliverance, as, as someone is, is delivered from danger or physical healing from a sickness. There, there are occasions when this word is used to refer to Jesus healing someone of a disease. But most often, this word sozo refers to the rescue in a spiritual sense. In just a few weeks, we'll find ourselves in the season of Advent. Can you believe that, by the way? We're, we're almost, it's crazy how fast time flies. And in a few weeks, we're going to be in the season of Advent where we commonly read these words. An angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, don't be afraid to take Mary as your wife because what has been conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. And she will give birth to a son, and you are to name him Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. Or consider perhaps the most famous verse in the Bible. For God loved the world in this way. He gave his one and only son so that everyone who believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world but to save the world through him. Or listen to Jesus' words to Zacchaeus. You remember that story? We often sang it in Sunday school. The wee little man. As Zacchaeus repents of his sin and puts his faith in Jesus, Jesus says, today salvation has come to this house. Jesus told him, because he too is a son of Abraham. For the son of man has come to seek and to save the lost. What the gospels present to us is this fundamental reality that the world is lost. That people are in need of rescue. And that that is why Jesus came. The Apostle Paul makes this idea even more clear in his letters to the Ephesians and the Romans. In Ephesians chapter 2, he writes this. He says, And you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you previously walked, according to the ways of this world, according to the ruler of the power of the air, the spirit now working in the disobedient. We all too previously lived among them in our fleshly desires, carrying out the inclinations of our flesh and thoughts. And we were by nature children under wrath, as the others were also. Paul says that we are natural born sinners who find ourselves in a position of rebellion and guilt who deserve God's judgment. That every person in the world is born spiritually dead in their sin and in need of rescue. In Romans chapter 5, verses 12 through 21, Paul teaches why that is the case. He shows us that when Adam sinned in the Garden of Eden, Adam was a representative of the human race. It says in verse 12, Therefore, just as sin entered the world through one man and death through sin, in this way death spread to all people because all sinned. When Adam sinned, all sinned because Adam represented us. And so his sin was imputed to us. His act of transgression was like a genetic disease that has been passed on to the whole human race. Mankind is, is, is fundamentally and deeply 
corrupted more than we tend to want to acknowledge. We easily accept, I think, especially if we've turned on the news in the last week, that there is evil in the world. I think we might even raise our hands to the idea that we are contributors to the brokenness of things at times. But I think we rarely go deep enough to acknowledge that the depth of our corruption is worse than we want to admit. I think we tend to often point the finger at our circumstances or at our upbringing, maybe even our genetics. It's because of my childhood experiences that I'm the way that I am. It's because it runs in my family. At a macro level, we tend to identify things like politics or socioeconomics as the root sources of our societal ills. But, but Scripture brings something else to the table. It, it teaches us that the fundamental problem facing humanity is not sociological or, or ideological or, or technological or, or political. That the fundamental problem that each and every one of us face is moral. We face a moral problem. D.A. Carson says to this, he says, if you're a Marxist, what you need are revolutionaries and decent economics. If you're a psychologist, what you need is an army of counselors. If you think the root of all malfunction and disorder is medical, what you really need are endless numbers of Mayo Clinics. But if our first and most serious need is to be reconciled to God because of our willfully chosen rebellion, then what we need the most, that we may have all these other derivative needs, is to be reconciled to him. We need someone to save us. The, the ultimate problem, says Carson, is our alienation from God. And what we must have is reconciliation back to this God or we have nothing. You hear what Carson's saying? He's not dismissing any of these other struggles or problems. But what he's saying is that there's something more fundamental. And if we don't get to that root layer, if we don't get all the way down to the bottom and deal with our moral condition, our spiritual need, our spiritual issue, then we have nothing at the end. The Bible's diagnosis to humanity's illness is that we have been separated from God. People need to be reconciled back to their creator. And it's easy, isn't it? It's easy for us to go through our days, to engage with our neighbors, to study with our classmates, to collaborate with our coworkers, to connect with our friends, and for it to never enter into our minds that the person that we are conversing with is a spiritual being whose greatest need is to be reconciled to God. We've become inoculated to this reality. We've numbed ourselves to it. We watch the news and we grieve when we see what is happening in Ukraine and in Gaza. And we quickly enter into discussions about foreign policy and political alliances and who's right and who's wrong and what the best path forward is. But we perhaps never pause to acknowledge that these are people, whether Russian or Ukrainian or Palestinian, or Israeli, that they're people who have been made in God's image and who desperately need to experience God's rescue. Church, people need the Lord. They need to be reconciled to their creator. They need to know Jesus as Savior. They need the deliverance and the healing that only comes through the gospel. Jesus said that he came to seek and to save the lost. 
He came to save people. We can't cruise past this word. As his followers, this is, the, this is the message, this is the ministry that he has commissioned us with to share with others. As the book of Acts begins, Jesus gathers his disciples and he tells them, he says, you're going to receive power. You're going to receive Holy Spirit power. And then you're going to be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. And then in the next chapter, in Acts chapter 2, Peter is filled with the Holy Spirit. And he stands before a crowd of people and he begins to declare the message of Jesus. That Jesus, the one who they crucified, proved by his resurrection that he was both Lord and Christ. That he's the one they've been waiting for. He's the one they've been hoping for. That he's the only one that they need. And when Peter finishes his sermon, he tells the listening crowd, repent and be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. And 3,000 people received Jesus that day. A little later in Acts chapter 4, Peter and John are forced to stand before the Sanhedrin and to give an account for the ruckus that they've been causing around town. Their ruckus was healing healing someone. They performed a miracle. And the passage says that Peter was then filled with the Holy Spirit, standing before the Sanhedrin, and said to them, rulers of the people and elders, if we are being examined today about a good deed done to a disabled man, and by what means he was healed, let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified and whom God raised from the dead, by him this man is standing before you healthy. This Jesus is the stone rejected by the builders, which has become the cornerstone. And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given to men by which we must be saved. There is no other name. There is salvation in no one else. The Apostle Paul told the Roman believers that if you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. The way to be put back in the right with God, the way to be reconciled to God is by faith in the person and the work of Jesus. His perfect life counts for your obedience. You were disobedient. His obedience counts for you. His sacrificial death counts for your disobedience. What you owed because of your rebellion was paid by him. And his victorious resurrection counts for your deliverance. There is life in Christ. We're saved by faith in his name. But a few verses later, Paul goes on and he says, but how can they call? On him, they have not believed in. And how can they believe without hearing about them? And how can they hear about him without a preacher? And how can they preach unless they're sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring the good news. Do you hear what Paul is saying? He's saying there is a gospel urgency to this message. Jackie DeShannon had a song in 1965 called What the World Needs Now. I think my goal every week is just going to be to throw a song out there and let it be in your brains the rest of the day. (laughs) The song said this, What the world needs now is love, sweet love. 
It's the only thing that there's just too little of. What the world needs now is love, sweet love. No, not just for some, but for everyone. She wasn't wrong. What the world needs is love. But church, love has a name. Love has a name. What the world needs now is Jesus. Sweet Jesus. And no, not just for some, but for everyone. Friends, the hope of the world, the hope of the world is Jesus Christ. This is the message that saves There there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Jesus is the answer. But what we also see here is that there is a method for putting this message on display for the world to see. What, What we see in the text here is that God intends for the church to be the exhibition of the gospel to the world. Local churches are to put on display for others to see the love and the grace of Jesus. This is actually how the gospel advances into the world. And so let's consider thirdly a gospel exhibition. Historian Larry Hurtado points out that the early church was a unique social project. That it was unlike any other religion or group in the ancient world. That they were this counterculture that was both offensive and attractive to the world they lived in. And he notes several key aspects about the early church that made them different. One of the things that he points out is that the early church was was multiracial and experienced a unity across ethnic boundaries that was startling. You know, the homogeneous unit principle is is something that goes way back. We tend to stick with people like us. In fact, there were church planting strategists in the 90s telling us that that is how we should plant churches. That we should should limit the number of barriers people have to cross to come to our churches. And so, in other words, we should get a bunch of of upper white middle class suburbanites together and form a church. And then we should get a bunch of urbanites together and form a different church. That we should have blacks in one church and whites in other churches because it's easier. But it was the exact opposite in the early church. One of the things that made them distinct and weird and unique was that they, there was remarkable unity across ethnic lines and socioeconomic lines. Ephesians 2 is a testimony to the importance of racial reconciliation as a fruit of gospel ministry. The early church was multiracial. It was multi-ethnic. It was multi-socioeconomic. It was multi-generational. It was young and old together. The early church was a community of forgiveness and reconciliation. Christians were often excluded and criticized because of their faith. They were even persecuted oftentimes. And yet the Christian church taught forgiveness and withheld retaliation against opponents. Now we need to bear in mind that this was a shame and honor culture. And in such a culture, vengeance was expected. And so this was unprecedented. It was unheard of to show forgiveness, to not taunt your opponents, let alone repay them with kindness instead of violence. 
The early church was also known for its hospitality to the poor and the suffering. It was an expectation in the first century that you care for your own family. But no one took care of really anyone outside of their tribe. And yet what we see in the early church is that they cared for all poor, even those of other races and religions. During the urban plagues, Christians characteristically didn't flee the cities, but stayed and cared for the sick and the dying of all groups, often at the cost of their own lives. It was a community committed to the sanctity of life. It was common practice in the first century to just abandon infants that were unwanted. It was called infant exposure. They would literally just leave an infant and abandon them. They were literally thrown into the garbage heaps, left to die or to be taken by traitors to enslave them. And what the Christian church began to do is they began to go to the garbage heap to rescue the abandoned infants and to bring them into their community and to love them. Christians loved the marginalized and the outcast. They were welcomed in. They treated every group with dignity. Finally, the the Christian social project was radically countercultural sexually. Roman culture insisted that women remain faithful to their husbands, but it was commonly expected for men to be unfaithful to their wives. They would have sex with people on lower than them socially, slaves and prostitutes. This wasn't only allowed, it was expected. Sex was, was seen as a physical appetite that was irresistible for men. But Christian social norms were different. The church forbade sex outside of heterosexual marriage. And this was because Christians' view of sexuality was was radically different. It saw sex not just as an appetite, but as a way to give oneself wholly to another person. And in so doing, to imitate and connect to the God who gave himself to us in Christ. Christians saw sexual self-control actually as freedom, that the Holy Spirit liberated them to live in the freedom of of control, that we aren't pawns of our desires and fate. The early church was radically countercultural. It was so different to the world around them. And we could summarize all of this to say that the early church was both weird and winsome. The earliest believers were seen as peculiar. They didn't fit in with the other pagan religions. They were oftentimes called atheists because they didn't acknowledge the pantheon of gods and goddesses that the Greeks believed in. They didn't worship the emperor like the Romans did. They also were ostracized by the Jews because they were seen as heretics and blasphemers for worshiping Jesus as Messiah. Many of their beliefs and practices were were strange. It often got them into trouble. There was no more persecuted group in the first three centuries than Christians. And yet, even while they were being ostracized and looked at as strange, the early church was remarkably winsome because they were radically generous and welcoming. The marginalized found a place of belonging. The sick were cared for. There was not a needy person among them, Luke tells us in our text, because they all sacrificially gave to care for each other. 
Can you imagine how attractive that was to someone in need? They were joyful and sincere. Luke tells us that they ate their food with joyful and sincere hearts. Despite the persecution and the poverty that was common among them, they ate their food with gladness and sincerity. Their happiness, in other words, wasn't tied to their status in society or their physical well-being. Christians had an identity that went deeper than the social norms. To the shock of all Roman society, Christians, whether slave or free, highborn or, or, or low class, whatever their race or nationality, they were all now seen as equal in Christ. They were brothers and sisters of one another. This was a spirit-filled community. We looked at it last week, but Luke describes them as being a group where everyone was filled with awe. It was unmistakable that God was actively at work among them, doing incredible things doing things that couldn't be explained. It was inexplicable power that was at work this, among this ragtag group of believers. And as they devoted themselves to Jesus and lived in fellowship with one another, the gospel was being displayed in such a way that people were being drawn in. They became a magnetic community. They're, they're finding favor with the people. And it says that the Lord was adding to their number those who were being saved. Tim Keller summarizes that it was because the early church didn't fit in with its surrounding culture, but rather challenged it in love, that Christianity eventually had such an effect on it. I think that's a word for us. I think it's a word for us. I think we spend too much time trying to fit in with the culture. We're called to be a holy agitator of the culture. We're called to be distinct we're called to challenge it with love, to be weird and winsome. And I think, church, this is the way forward for us. That the arena for gospel advancement in the world is the local church. It's in our city groups. It's in our living rooms and our dinner tables. It's in our shared lives together. It's in the way that we care for one another. It's in the way that we love each other across lines of age and ethnicity and socioeconomics. It's, it's in the way that we welcome the outsider and love the marginalized, giving them a place to belong even before they believe. Hey, listen to me. If you're here this morning, you're like, man, I, I, I don't know if I believe in Jesus. I just want you to know there's a place for you to belong here even if you don't yet believe. And my hope for you is that as you see us love each other and care for each other, as we create space for you to ask questions and learn, and as you see in us a demonstration of the power of the gospel to change lives and to mend hearts, as you see us radically love one another, that you would find Jesus. But you're safe here. You're free here. We want you here. We're glad you're here this morning. Church, it's as we love one another and pursue forgiveness and reconciliation with each other as we seek the renewal of our city and take interest in its well-being, that we care for this city. It's through all of these things that we put the beauty of the gospel and the power of the gospel on display for our neighbors to see. And I think as we live into this reality, people are going to, to notice something and be drawn to it. It's like a bug with those blue lights, man. They just can't stay away from it. 
But instead of getting zapped to death, they come to life in Jesus. That one came, that, that was on the, off the dome, Tom. <laughs> that was on the fly. Just came to me. We want to attract you to Jesus. We don't want to kill you, okay? Just to be clear. Church, we're a people on mission. We, 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 we cannot lose that. We're a people on mission. We've been sent into the world to demonstrate and declare the goodness of Jesus from right here in Wichita to the world. If you long for the gospel to advance, listen to me. If you long for the gospel to advance, one of the most important things you can do is commit yourself 100% to a local church. Be all the way in till it costs you. Because you're in relationships with others. Your, your life is entwined with others in such a way that you're, you're having to sacrificially give to them. And you're having to receive from them. You're, you're, you're putting the grace of Jesus on display in relationship. You're loving each other in, in a weird way. You're in relationship with people. This is one of the reasons why, because we get asked this a lot. Why aren't your city groups affinity based? Why can't... You know, seasoned saints be with seasoned saints and younger saints be with younger saints. And, well, you know, why can't we do stage? Because the gospel doesn't work that way. It reconciles us together across ethnic and age lines. It brings us, it brings us together. And, and if the world's going to see that Jesus is real, if they're going to experience that the resurrection is true, they need to see it displayed in us. If you long for the gospel to advance in the world... Give yourself to the local church. Be all in. Sometimes people ask me, what's, what's your strategy for missions at City Life? And I think often what they mean is, what programs can I get involved in? That's not a bad question, by the way. But my response is to say that our strategy is every member seeing themselves as a missionary. Sent into everyday life to make Jesus known. It is the call of every believer to take the message of the gospel with them everywhere they go. We're all sent. My strategy is you. But listen to me. We're sent together. We're sent together. The gospel shines best through the prism of a devoted community. It's displayed best in our fellowship. And so if I have a strategy... It's to plant gospel-centered churches. If you want to know, like, what's my strategy for advancing the gospel to the world, it would be to plant gospel-centered churches. More city lives, in more cities, in more nations. What the world needs more of is Jesus-enamored local assemblies of believers devoted to the apostles' teaching, devoted to fellowship, devoted to the breaking of bread and to prayer. Caring for each other, living in the power of the Holy Spirit, testifying to his grace. This is how the gospel will advance until Christ returns. Weird, winsome, devoted communities. Let's pray.